Hey there, welcome. This is Daniel M. from Beulah Alliance Church. As we open up the scriptures together, I hope this helps you know Jesus deeply and be known by him fully. Enjoy the message. Jesus is either the Son of God or just a man. If he's just a man, we can live however we want. But if he's the Son of God, then everything changes. So starting today, we are going to get to know Jesus by digging into the oldest testimony of his life, the Gospel of Mark. So let's start with some background information. Who is Mark? Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? (laughs) Well, it was Mark, right? Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. uh, And why did he write it? So here are two things that we need to know about Mark as we open this up. The first thing is that he wasn't one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was a disciple of Peter. So in fact, when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're actually reading what happened through the lens of Peter, through the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So I guess Mark is sort of Peter's lens in what happened and and, and how it happened. Mark wrote it while Peter was alive, but he completed it in Italy after Peter's death. The second thing to know about Mark is that Mark was an integral part of the early church, even though he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. For example, in Acts 12, maybe you remember a story of when Peter was in prison and miraculously saved and released by an angel. And then he walked to a house that was full of Christians meeting. Well, that house was Mary's house, who is John Mark's mom. Take a look. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was called Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. This was Mark's mom's house that Peter went to. Mark, the author of the gospel, He went on missionary journeys with Barnabas and with Paul to Jerusalem and to Cyprus. So along these missionary journeys, imagine the conversations that must have taken place for Mark. How he must have heard these stories of Jesus through others along the way. And also what's neat is Barnabas and Mark were actually cousins. Well, along the way, Barnabas and Paul, when they turned to go inland to Asia, Mark returned to Jerusalem, which created a bit of a rift between Paul and Mark, since Paul refused to take Mark along on the next trip. As a result, Barnabas and Mark, cousins, returned to Cyprus to strengthen the churches there, and Paul and Silas went to Cilicia to strengthen the churches there. Later on, Paul and Mark worked out their differences, and and they're good to go, uh, because in fact, Mark later on served as Paul's delegate uh, to Asia Minor when Paul was later in prison. Okay, so that's a little bit of Mark, the author of this gospel. Why did he write it? Why did he write it? Well, first, he wrote it in the decade of AD 60 to 70 in Rome or Italy in response to the crisis that the Christians were facing uh, because of the fire that happened in Rome. Mark wrote it to help the Roman Christians learn how to stand firm in their faith. They were facing all of this persecution because of the great fire of Rome in AD 64. Okay, so here's what happened. Nero, the emperor at the time, was a tyrant. 
He was a tyrant. He controlled the Senate. Uh, it, wasn't an elect, it wasn't necessarily an elected Senate. He just totally controlled what happened there. Uh, he made life miserable for anyone who had any sort of money, false trials, confiscating the wealth. And then he would, uh, he would uh, and, and in through all of that, he actually ignored the Christians. Okay? He ignored the Christians, even though he was a bit of a tyrant, until the great fire of AD 64. Take a look at this. This fire started near Circus Maximus, and because of strong winds, it actually spread throughout Rome, and it was left untouched for a week. Can you imagine a fire just being, just continuing to burn without any sort of mitigation of it within a city for a week? And then when it was finally, when it finally calmed down, uh, it began to spread out again, eventually reducing 10 of the 14 wards of the city. 10 of the 14 wards of the city to ash and rubble. As you can imagine, this fire was a huge shock to the city. And rumors actually started spreading that it was Nero himself who started the fire. Here's what the historian Tacitus said. Disaster followed. Whether it was accidental or caused by the emperor's criminal act is uncertain. Both versions have supporters. No one dared fight the flames. Attempts to do so were prevented by menacing gangs. Torches, too, were openly thrown in by men crying that they had acted under orders. So Nero tried to quell the rumors that he was the one who started it and he was the one that prevented it from being put out, but he couldn't. So he found a scapegoat, the Christians. He ignored the Christians pretty much up until then, but he couldn't get out of this. So he started to blame the Christians for starting something that they actually didn't. As a result, he arrested Christians and he didn't just arrest them in private, but he arrested them in a spectacle. He would dress them in animal, wild animals' clothes and then let dogs attack them. He would crucify the Christians. And then at night, when it was dark, he would light Christians on fire and use them as torches to light up the city. So that's what the Christians were facing when Mark wrote this gospel. He wrote this gospel in this context in Italy after all of this happened to help sustain the Christians who were facing all of this to sustain them through their suffering, to strengthen them as they saw their friends get persecuted and to remind them of the why of their faith. Why believe? Why Jesus? And why any of this matters? Now here's the reason Mark didn't write an essay on living through persecution. He could have done that. The reason he didn't write that and wrote the gospel of Mark instead was because no one had yet written down what happened with Jesus. Mark was the first gospel written to record the life of Jesus. So think about this, right? When the Roman believers who had not ever met Jesus, some of them had, right? But for those who had never yet met Jesus, when they received the gospel of Mark, just imagine, right? Imagine what they must have been feeling. This was the first time they were ever able to read what happened to Jesus with their own eyes instead of just relying on what people said and how it was verbally shared in teaching. I mean, imagine how powerful that would be. Being able to read what happened to Jesus when previously you couldn't. 
Imagine how empowering it would be when your friends were being thrown to wild animals to then read about Jesus who was ousted into the wilderness, also where there were wild animals that he had to face. Imagine if you were being misinterpreted and falsely labeled. Imagine how comforting it would be to read about this Jesus who is also misinterpreted and falsely labeled. And as you were being betrayed by friends and trying to wrestle with how to handle those relationships, imagine reading about Judas, who was one of Jesus' friends, betraying him. And how Jesus then handled that situation. In and throughout the Gospel of Mark, Mark wrote about the way that Jesus spoke about persecution and the way that all of us are to expect persecution to be a normal part of our Christian lives, that, that actually persecution is an opportunity to share about Jesus and to place our hope in him and how persecution can, can also lead to martyrdom. Imagine how comforting and encouraging it would have been for the Christians to read about this as they were facing this persecution. And lastly, in the face of death, as these Roman Christians, some were facing family members and friends who had died and maybe they were going to die because of this false um, accusations and because of this persecution. Imagine as you are awaiting death to read about this Jesus who didn't remain dead but was raised from the dead. And the hope that we have that this life isn't all that there is. Imagine how encouraging that would be. Do you see how Mark, do you see how and why Mark wrote this gospel and, and how it would have been relevant for the original readers and listeners? I mean, it was relevant because of all the reasons we went through, right, for the original listeners and readers. But for us today, do you see how the gospel of Mark is relevant? Because in and through studying the historical Jesus, we will then meet the living Jesus. In and through studying the, the word of the Lord, we will meet the Lord of the word. And as we do that, everything will change. So now that we've covered some background information about Mark, let's read the first eight verses of Mark. We know who wrote it and why. Let's start with the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, today's message was a hard one to prepare because there are so many different directions that we could have gone. For example, we could have spent the entire message just in the first verse. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For example, in that first phrase, beginning, the beginning, we see in Genesis 1, the same phrase. In the creation of this world, there was the beginning. That was the beginning in Genesis 1. And then in Mark 1, we read about the new creation, the beginning of the gospel. So the beginning of the gospel in Mark 1 is actually the fulfillment of the beginning of creation. There's so many connections like that in this first verse. And that's just scratching the surface. We could have, we could have unpacked what that word gospel means. Sometimes we see the word gospel as meaning book, but in this context, gospel actually means a living word communicated by a messenger of hope. That's what the gospel means in Mark 1. And then there are the words Jesus Christ and the Son of God, which are sermons in and of themselves. So we could have gone that way. I could have preached on baptism, but that's actually what we're going to do next week. Next week is going to be our baptism weekend. So I'm going to be sharing about in the next verses about Jesus getting baptized and what it means for us to get baptized, why that's important. And if you haven't yet been baptized, we're going to have two tanks on the stage and have an opportunity for you to listen about baptism. We're going to have interviewers in the hallway helping you process and hear your story. And then we're going to spend the weekend in worship and in baptism after that. So that's next week. If you know already that you want to be baptized, you can go to bulo.ca slash baptism. If you're not yet sure, just come next week and we're going to have everything ready for you to take that next step. So I could have done that, right? But that's what we're doing next week. And, and I also could have addressed this passage, these eight verses through a question and answer sort of format. So that what was swirling in my mind this past week I remember last Saturday I was walking my dog and I was just, I was just praying. I was like, God, there's so many different directions that I could go with this passage. What do you want to say this next week to our people? And that's when it hit me. Snow's melting. The weather's getting warmer. We took our patio furniture out, replaced our snow tires on one of our cars, I mean, it, the days are getting longer. It feels so good because hope is coming. And that's what I felt like God was saying. He was like, look around. What is happening right now outside is what's happening in this passage. When John came baptizing in the wilderness, the people of God were in winter. I mean, not literally in winter, but it felt like they were in a seven-month-long winter when we hadn't experienced 16-degree weather for that long. Okay, we all know what that feels like, right? That's what the people of God were feeling in this moment. And that's when it hit me. John was a messenger of hope, proclaiming a message of hope to a world desperate for hope. And that's when it came and I was like, that's this, this is what's happening in these eight verses. And this is what we're gonna spend the rest of our time unpacking. Friends, the people of God were desperate for hope. I mean, they had been living in a long winter. 
to be precise, it was a 300-year winter. I mean, there's no 300-year winter, so it was an ice age, right? They were living in a 300-year ice age because there, have been, there had been no prophets for that long. Now, some people interpreted this silence to mean that the end, that there were going to be no more prophets ever. And then others clung on to the hope that the faithful prophet would appear, one like Moses, as we read about in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. In other words, the people of God were waiting and hoping for signs of spring. Signs so that they could swap out their winter tires, take out their patio furniture, and go camping. But for more than 300 years, nothing happened. For 300 years, there were no signs of spring. So you can imagine why so many people lost hope. But then in these verses, we see that the snow began to melt. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. In these verses, we see that John was a messenger of hope. He was a messenger of hope because he was the one that was prophesied to come. In Exodus 23, 20, this messenger in the Old Testament was prophesied to be a divine human messenger, a divine messenger, not just a human mailman. Okay? And that's what we see here with John. And then in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, also in the Old Testament, this messenger was going to be prophesied to be either the prophet Elijah or be one like Elijah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, also in the Old Testament, this messenger was going to point to the way and to the path. So we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 3, it says, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. Jesus himself said later that I am the way, the truth, and the, the life, and there no other paths can lead to God. There is only one path, and that's through Jesus Christ. So when John the Baptist arrived on the scene preaching and proclaiming, it was like the people of God had experienced their first 16-degree sunny day in more than 300 years. More than 300 years. In Mark 1, we see what happens next. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This was a massive turning point, right? 300-year silence, the 300-year ice age had finally been broken and was starting to melt, and now the way for the Messiah was being prepared. I love how this one theologian put it. To speak of the gospel of Jesus is to speak of the good news which began with John. And friends, that's why John is a messenger of hope. Now, 
when John came baptizing and preaching, he made sure to tell everyone that he wasn't the main show. His message of hope wasn't that he had come, but that someone more powerful than him was going to come. And that's our second point. John was proclaiming a message of hope that the best was yet to come. So when people heard this, they were probably thinking and feeling, wait, 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 let's slow it down just a bit. John, you are the one that we've been waiting for. You, you know, do you know what we've been living through? What our people have been living through for the last 300 years? You are the sign of spring. You are the one we've been waiting for. What do you mean that there's someone more powerful that's going to come? You're the one. You're the one. And yes, I know. It's, you're, I mean, you, it's kind of weird that you're wearing this camel hair clothes. It's, it's a bit odd that you dress like that. But, but, but you wear a belt like Elijah. You're the one to come. And, and yes, I know that your breath smells of locusts and honey. And I'm more of a peanut butter and honey sort of guy. But, you know, you do you. And you can get your protein through locusts and honey. I can do it a different way. And even though you're like that, John, you, you, you don't know what we've been living through. You here doing what you're doing is literally the most exciting thing that's happened to our people in the last 300 years. The most exciting thing that I've ever experienced. John, you're the one that we've been waiting for. That's what the people of God were feeling. And that's essentially what they were talking about in and amongst themselves when John came baptizing. So then John hearing all this is like, uh, in the face of all this, he's like, y'all, I know John wasn't Southern. <laughs> Uh, but I, I imagine him saying, y'all, uh, I imagine him saying, y'all, you think this is good? Like, spring has come. I recognize this, that we've been living in this ice age, but this is just spring. You think this is good? You just wait. You just wait because summer is coming. The best is yet to come. That's what he was saying when he said in verse 7, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the thing, okay? It's our third point. John was in a world desperate for hope. He was in a world desperate for hope. When Moses led the people of God out of Egypt and through the waters of the Red Sea. He was leading them to repent. The people of God were going one way and he was leading them to take a 180 degree turn to repent and go the other way. In the Passover, the people of God were asking, right, were asking for forgiveness of their sins by sacrificing an unblemished lamb. And by walking through the waters of the Red Sea, they were turning the other page, going the other way. They were repenting. They were walking away from their life of sin. They were walking away from, from their life of disbelief, doubt, and hopelessness. They're, they're, and they were moving toward a future out 
of slavery by going through the Red Sea. Well, in the same way, John here is leading the people of God to repent, to go the other way. He's inviting the people of God into forgiveness and into asking for forgiveness from their life of doubt, hopelessness, and disbelief and despair. He's asking and leading them to take a 180-degree turn, not through the Red Sea, but through the waters of the Jordan River to a new life, to new hope, to not temporary hope, but to permanent hope in the person of Jesus. In other words, what Moses and John couldn't do, Jesus did. What Moses and John tried to do, Jesus ultimately did. Moses and John's forgiveness, call to ask for forgiveness was temporary, but with Jesus, Jesus himself was the unblemished lamb. You didn't need an unblemished lamb over there. John and Moses needed that, but Jesus himself came as the unblemished lamb. And he was like, if you come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, if you come to me, you don't need to walk through this water again. Just go through it once and you're saved. You're forgiven. You're transformed. You're set free. Forgiveness is found in me. That's, friends, that's what Jesus did. That's what he came to do. With Moses and John, they could only point to God. In the first exodus, God led people at night through a pillar of fire and in day through a pillar, through a cloud. Um, but in the second exodus, God, that was the first exodus, in the second exodus that we see here, God was going to lead people through Jesus in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't need a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. We have Jesus. And we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what Mark is talking about when he says, and he talks about being baptized by the Holy Spirit in verse 8. In other words, when John the Baptist says here that one coming after him, that the one coming after him is going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, he was declaring a message of hope to a world desperate for hope. He was declaring that the one coming after him is Jesus, Jesus is God. Now here's the thing. All of John's original listeners would have known that in the Old Testament, only God could give the Holy Spirit. They knew that. But in John saying that the one coming after me is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, what he was essentially saying is that the one coming after me is going to be God himself. There's an Old Testament prophecy about this in Joel chapter 2. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will even pour out. There it is again. I will pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Do you see the connection here between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and seeing the Holy Spirit being poured out? They're both liquid metaphors being poured out and being baptized. In fact, when you read about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, all, there, are so, there are so many analogies and metaphors using water and liquid because there's a connection between Joel 2 and what we see here in Mark chapter 1. So here's what John's doing here. John is essentially declaring 
that although the baptism of water is for temporary forgiveness, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for permanent forgiveness. That's what he means when the one coming after him is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And that, my dear friends, is a message of hope for a world desperate for hope. So, what does this mean for us today? My dear brothers and sisters, what if, like John, we became messengers of hope, proclaiming a message of hope for a world desperate for hope? What do you think that would look like for you if you became that messenger of hope? Well, first of all, you wouldn't have to dress weird like John. <laughs> right? You don't need to wear camel hair. You don't need to put a leather belt on. Uh, you don't need to eat locusts and honey. Peanut butter and honey is good. Right? You can stick with that for protein. You don't, we don't need to do any of that. To be a messenger of hope means to proclaim a message of hope through our word and deeds. So let's, let's think about that for a moment. Okay? What does it look like to proclaim a message of hope at work? How can you be a messenger of hope and proclaim a message of hope at work? Maybe not eating lunch on your own and actively listening and connecting with those around you. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it's Starting a prayer meeting. If you've met other Christians in your workplace, maybe it's praying together at lunch or studying the Bible together. Praying for your, maybe just praying for your workplace is a way that you can start being a message of hope and be a person of hope. What do you think it looks like to be a messenger of hope proclaiming a, a message of hope at school? If you go to school. What do you think that looks like? In the way that you interact with your friends? In the way that you approach your studies? How about at home? Maybe with a roommate, or with those you are with, or your family? What does it look like to be a messenger of hope? Not despair, <laughs> not judgment, parents, right? Not of discipline. I mean, we are disciplined. But what if we were actually known more for our hope? What would that look like? What would it look like in your neighborhood? Do your neighbors see you as a messenger of hope? Do you know your neighbor? Not just do you know who they are, but do you know their name? Do you know anything about them other than what car they drive? To be a messenger of hope in our neighborhood, we've got to first know who they are, right? And right now, spring is a great time to do that. How can we be messengers of hope, proclaiming a message of hope to a world desperate for hope? You know what? Um, John probably smelt. Let's be honest here. Right, like you read the description of him and he probably smelt. Uh, he probably smelt 
but people were attracted to him. <laughs> he wasn't wearing the cologne of the day. He didn't just take a shower. I mean, let's, let's just be honest here. He, he was probably really weird and smelly. Right? But so many people were attracted to him. How do you think that they were so attracted to him? It's because he had what everyone was longing for. He had what people's souls desired. Friends, if someone cut you, would you bleed hope or cynicism? If someone cut you, would you bleed hope or apathy? Someone cut you, if, would you bleed hope or anger? What's running through your veins? Friends, hope isn't your stocks going back up. Hope isn't the grocery prices going back down. Hope isn't your favorite politician being elected or being reelected. Hope isn't any of that. Because hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. So Beulah Church family, may we be messengers of hope, proclaiming a message of hope to a world desperate for hope. Amen? Amen. Well, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand. And I want us to sing this song. It's a song, Christ Be Magnified. And in, in and through, I know we're singing with our mouths, but, but in and through the blood that is pulsing through your veins. In and through your every thought, your every fiber of your being. I pray that this song would rise out from inside our souls. That this wouldn't just be a song that we hear others singing, but it would be a song that we all sing. Now, maybe you're like, I'm not a good singer. That's okay. <laughs> John Smelt, it's fine. <laughs> we all have our foibles, it's okay. Let's shout out. Let's sing out the hope that we have in Christ. Not only so it sinks deep into our soul, but so that it goes out into greater Edmonton and lights this city up. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening, and thank you for giving. Your giving makes this podcast possible and helps us share this message with others. If today's message made you realize that you need to take your next step with Jesus, we'd love to help you with that. The easiest way to do that is by going to beulah.family on your browser. On that page, you'll find our social media links, links to upcoming events, and a link to give. And don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We'll see you soon.